I was a skinny and kind of nerdy kid. I know that surprises many of you. In, in, the, in the picture, I'm the one in the tank top with the Beatles haircut. My parents thought that that was the thing to do, was to give me, and my, my little brother is the one in front shrugging his shoulders down there. The other two are my uncles. Actually, for those of you who have been here a little bit longer, one of those uncles, the one right next to me, actually has preached for us a few times. And that's, that's my dad, by the way, for those of you who know my dad, before the white hair, before the Santa Claus beard, that is, kind of looked like Elvis, didn't he? That's what people used to say. Anyway. Now, I guess you could say that in some ways, at least mentally, I was somewhat mature. It's probably subject to debate. But physically, I was kind of a late bloomer. And that resulted in my being quite nervous around pretty much everybody. And I was able to, sure, use my humor and my vocabulary to survive. I could talk my way out of any bad situation and someday... I'll tell you about some of them. I've actually used some of them in sermon illustrations. I found myself in a lot of bad situations because I'm a bit of a smart aleck. But being able to do that didn't quell that ever-present feeling of fear that I had. It didn't help that I, I grew up in Miami during the time that it was the murder capital of the United States. When I grew up, Miami had a higher murder rate than New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Cleveland, okay? Miami was a, kind of a bad place. They should have made a show about it. Oh, they did. <laughs> but at home, that's all we talked about. We talked about crime constantly at home. And, and we were subjected to daily instructions about locking our doors and being mindful about every danger that existed in the home and outside of the home. I mean, all the dangers. And, and that kind of resulted in my living with this constant state of anxiety. I don't know if any of you live with anxiety, but it's not fun. But crime wasn't even my greatest fear. My, my greatest fear was, was the fear of getting hurt, specifically the fear of being punched or hit by somebody else. That was my, I don't know why that was my greatest fear, but that was my greatest fear. And that fear drove everything that I did, or, or more often than not, chose everything, or, or drove everything that I chose not to do. I mean, I avoided people who made me nervous. I avoided places that gave me anxiety. I avoided activities that made me uncomfortable. I didn't see horror movies. I didn't go on roller coasters. I didn't go to parties. If I hadn't had friends who insisted that I go out and join them, and their weekend activities, I probably never would have left the house. I probably never would have left my bedroom. And then one weekend, and I'm not entirely sure what exactly precipitated it, but I decided, you know what, I've had enough of this. I've had enough. I need to do something to get over it. But I didn't know what. But the answer wasn't too difficult to find. You see, growing up, I watched a lot of television, as did a lot of people in my generation. And one of my favorite TV shows was a show called Kung Fu. I think some of you remember that. Oh, yeah. David Carradine starred in it. You, you, would have, you have no idea if you haven't researched it how much politics was behind that show and all the topics. It only ran for a few years. It ran from 1972 to 1975, so four seasons. But it became one of the most popular TV shows of all time. And it arrived on the scene at the same time that 
a bunch of other martial arts-themed entertainment was being produced. You guys remember the cartoon Hong Kong Fui? Remember the song Kung Fu Fighting? We all know Chuck Norris. Remember that? But much of the show's popularity resulted from the popularity of another martial artist who came, born in the United States, actually grew up in Hong Kong and came back. Anybody know his name? Bruce Lee, of course. Still, by the way, he's been dead a long time and everybody still knows him. And Bruce Lee, along with the Kung Fu series, are created with introducing the martial arts to the American mainstream. It's interesting here at Hammock Street, we actually have a, a lot of martial artists. We have uh, actually one of our folks uh, sitting in the room with us now runs a karate school here, martial arts school, a lot of martial artists here for some weird reason. But as you might imagine, the, the genre also influenced every schoolyard bully to make karate a part of their repertoire. Whether they'd studied martial arts or not, by the way, none of them did, because anybody who has would never be a bully. But as soon as I was able, I started studying martial arts. Little by little, my confidence grew, and after a while, it became time to learn how to fight. Now, at first, the fighting is pretty tame. It's just kind of tapping and stuff, but... Eventually, it became more serious, and then the day arrived that it was time to face my greatest fear, the fear of being hit in the head. So as part of my green belt test for my major style that I studied, I had to face this black belt, and his name, biblically-themed name, was John Mark. It's actually his name. John, I know you're not watching, but if you are, hi. Um, Now, we kind of faced off at first, and we, we touched gloves, and I got to tell you, I was terrified, and that was the best part of it. It got worse from the touching gloves, and we touched gloves. I, I told him something like, I'm really looking forward to facing you, which, which was a lie, by the way, and he quietly leaned in, and he whispered to me, prepare to defend yourself. As soon as they said begin, he grabbed both of my shoulders And he planted a knee so deeply into my chest, so powerfully into my sternum that my legs buckled under me. So I kind of fell back like this. And as I was falling to the ground, falling to the ground, he hit me with a right hook on the left side of my head so hard that I saw stars. But in this sudden disoriented state, if you've ever been hit in the head, it's very disorienting. I realized something. And Before I crumpled to the ground, I smiled because I got hit in the head, I faced my greatest fear, and I didn't die. (laughs) I staggered back, I regained my balance, I finished the fight, sustaining about four more hard hits to my head, showed up the next day at work, I was black and blue and swollen and everything, and I, I I was so proud of it too, but I wasn't afraid anymore. I'd spent my whole life living in fear And within the space of a three-minute fight, my greatest fear went away. And all I had to do was face it, literally head on. It would continue for me. I would keep going back. I continued weekly training in the martial arts for decades after that. When my kids were born, I made sure they did the same thing too. And more importantly, the lesson I learned that day would inform the way that I handled every other challenge that I would ever face for the rest of my life. Which brings us to the next installment in our new series called Win the Day. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the way that God 
and his word need to inform our lives so that we can live abundantly and so we can fulfill God's calling on us. Now, last week we talked about how if we want to win the day, we needed to learn to flip the script, right? We talked about, we saw that flipping the script is the way that we can change our lives by changing our stories, by learning to understand our challenges as opportunities, opportunities presented to us so that we can harness God's power in our lives and live abundantly and bring him glory. Well, this week, we're going to see how we can win the day when we learn to kiss the wave. What does that mean? We're going to find out. Let's pray, and we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us again this morning. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to be together, both on site and online as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who love you, as people who have devoted our lives to you, as people who are looking forward to and looking to live for you here in this world. So God, as we take a look at the scripture today, we ask that you would use it to change our hearts and minds. We love you very much in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, a pastor by the name of John Ortberg, he has a church out in... uh, in California, actually had a church. I think he just retired. He wrote a book with one of my favorite book titles. The book was called, If You Want to Walk on the Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat, I See. Some of you have heard that saying before. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty common saying. And even though it kind of ruins the impact of the saying to explain it, kind of like it ruins a joke when you have to explain it, I want to make sure that we all see it. If we want God's blessings in our lives, then we first have to act. We first have to take a step in faith. So following that logic, how's this for a biblical reference? If you want God to make a path through the sea, hint, this is foreshadowing, if you want God to make a path through the sea, you need to wade into the water first. Most of us spent most of our lives waiting for God to split the sea for us. But today I want to explore the possibility that maybe, maybe, God is waiting for us to get our feet wet first. Maybe God is waiting for us to wade into the water so that then he can do his work in and through us. Maybe if we want God to do the super, we have to first do the natural. Maybe God is waiting for us to lean in and kiss the wave. In order to go from victim to victor, we have to do something. We have to take a step of faith. We have to take a leap of faith. And as most of you know, the first step of anything is always the most difficult. Why is that? Well, the first step into a new territory, into something new, something unknown, requires us to overcome fear, overcome our fear, which can only be done when we exercise our faith. Now, God's given us a great example of this principle in the second book of the Bible, the book of the Exodus, So we're going to be spending our time in Exodus chapter 14 today, but first I want to give you a little bit of background. So Exodus 14, remember that's the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus 14 brings us the story of the Jews' exit from Egypt. And the chapter begins with the Israelites trapped between the Egyptian army, so that was the world's superpower, and the Red Sea. So the people trapped, the Israelites faced a no-win situation. Death by sword behind them, death by drowning in front of them. So just put yourself in their situation for a moment and just imagine the sound 
of the, of the horses, of the hoofbeats, of the creaking of their saddles and, and their armor. Imagine the sound of the, the chariots running through the desert. Imagine the shouting of the commands and the battle cries. And imagine all of that bearing down on you at breakneck speed. Exodus 14.10, when the Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. All right, so it makes sense, makes perfect sense. The Israelites were terrified and they cried out to God. And Moses, their leader, turned to them and said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All right, so speaking on behalf of the Lord, Moses told the people, fear not, stand firm, and be silent. So we're going to leverage Moses' advice, and we're going to look at how three simple thoughts will help us to learn to kiss the wave. Face your fear, stand your ground, and hold your peace. All right, so how does this work? Well, first we're going to have a look at, number one, face your fear. All right? Exodus 14, 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. It's been said that oftentimes God's people need to take the first step in faith before God will reveal the second step of his faithfulness. So to illustrate this principle, I want to take a look at the Jewish legend of a man who is named in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. So here we go. Early in the Old Testament, in the Torah, we are introduced to a descendant of Judah named Nashon. He was named in the book of Numbers, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And then again, he's mentioned, it's the only other place in Scripture he's mentioned, he's mentioned in the book of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, Aaron took his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. So there he is. We know he's there. We know he's a real person. So from these two mentions, we actually also know that Nashon was the great, great, great grandfather of King David, which also puts him in Jesus' line. So he's an ancestor of Jesus. So we know that he had a pretty good biblical bloodline. Now, according to Jewish legend, and you're going to see why I said that in a minute, as explained by the Jewish sages and recorded in both the Midrash and the Talmud, Nashon became a true example of faithfulness in God. All right, so before we continue a word on what those strange words mean, because I'll tell you, most people don't know, and quite frankly, I always get confused. But here's what they mean. As we've talked about before, the words, by the way, are Torah, Midrash, Mishnah, and Talmud. We've all heard Torah the rest of them might be confusing. So we've talked a lot about Torah. Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, known as the Jewish book of the law given by God to Moses. Now, in the Torah, there are contained 613 laws for the Jewish people to follow in order to please God. Now, over time, teachers, rabbis, interpreted the Torah, which is referred to as the written law, and those rabbinical interpretations of the written law became known as the oral law. And they had the same weight of authority as the written law. Now, eventually the oral law was written down as well. And it became known as a series of documents known as the Midrash and the Mishnah. 
What's the difference? The Midrash was compiled according to the order of the books of the Torah and the Bible. And the Mishnah was compiled topically. So they're both commentaries that were written down. One's compiled according to the book order. One's compiled according to topics. Faith and marriage and love and and so on. So during the centuries that followed, the Mishnah and the Midrash were studied extensively by generation after generation after generation of rabbis. And eventually, some of the rabbis wrote down the things they talked about when they were talking about these two things. And that ended up in a series of books known as the Talmud. You got all that? No, you don't. That's okay. You don't have to remember it. I just wanted you to get a sense of how everything transpired and how we got to this story. Anyway, now for the story. So, about a week, seven days after leaving Egypt, the Israelites found themselves trapped between the raging Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And God gave Moses a command that seemed to be impossible to fulfill. God said in Exodus 14, 15, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. All right? They're facing the sea. God says, tell them to go forward. The order was given to go forward, sea or no sea. But the problem, of course, was there was no way to go forward. So who would take the first step? At that moment, so the legend goes, Nashon's devotion and bravery came to the fore. Now, the Midrash and the Talmud share the following account. So, when Israel stood facing the Red Sea, the command was given to move forward. Each of the tribes hesitated, saying, I don't want to be the first ones to jump in. But Nashon saw what was happening, and he jumped. He jumped into the sea. Now, again, according to the story at that moment, Moses was standing and praying, and God said to him, my beloved ones are drowning in the stormy seas, and you are standing there and praying And Moses replied, Master of the world, what am I to do? And God said, and now we actually go back to Exodus, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on dry ground. And so it happened. According to the story, following Nashon's faithful lead, the Israelites entered the sea and were saved. So Nashon literally had enough faith to kiss a wave, right? To kiss the wave. Now, I know what you're thinking, maybe. I was thinking the same thing. Whether Nashon is the actual person who really first stepped into the Red Sea or not, we can't know. This is rabbinical legend. But I think the story still works because somebody had to take the first step, right? Somebody had to be the first person to kiss the wave. And if you've got the metaphorical Egyptian army coming at you, it's fight or flight time, isn't it? I mean, think about it. We've all been in the situation where there's an army bearing down upon us, whatever that is, you panic. But God says, don't panic. God says, fear not. Well, that's easier said than done, for sure. But courage is not the absence of fear. In those situations, fear is actually a prerequisite. You better have some fear, some healthy fear. The real question is, how do you handle fear in moments like this? Now, according to psychologists, and this is interesting, when we're born, we're born with only two fears. A newborn baby has two fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. That makes sense, doesn't it? Every other fear we have is a learned fear, which means that every other fear can be unlearned as well. So faith should be thought of then as the process of unlearning fear. How do you do that? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, if if you understand that notwithstanding your innate, your inborn sinfulness, Jesus loves you anyway? 
And out of his love for you, he's made a way for you to be connected forever to God by by paying for all of your sins on the cross and being buried and then coming back from the dead. And if you turn for your natural self and make Jesus your Lord and leader and Savior, he'll give you an eternal life connected to him. And once you're connected in faith to Jesus, by definition, you're connected to perfect love because John tells us that God is perfect love. And when you're connected to Jesus, you no longer have to live in fear because, as John said in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. As such, a life lived for God brings us the cure for every other fear. So it's interesting, the cure for my fear of being hit in the head was not avoiding getting hit in the head, which seems intuitive, but that wasn't it. The cure for my fear of being hit in the head was getting hit in the head. And likewise, the cure for fear of failure isn't success. The cure for fear of failure is failure in small enough doses until you learn to deal with it. And it follows generally that the cure for any fear is facing it while trusting in God to work out the situation for your benefit and his glory, just as he told you he would. We can experience major growth in our faith if we learn to embrace the thing that happens when we face our biggest fear. When we experience a setback, we shouldn't take a step back because God's already preparing our comeback. A little rhyme for you. As God told Moses, I have planned this in order to display my glory. God had this all planned. And the old axiom in this situation is correct. On the other side of fear is freedom. If we can learn to lean on God in faith, we can wade into the water like Nashon and we can kiss the wave. All right, moving on. Number two, stand your ground. Here's what Moses said in Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, stand firm. Now, all the different English translations kind of translate it differently. The English Standard Version says stand firm, as in having done all you can, just hang in there. The New Living Translation says stand still, as in be still and know that I'm God. The Amplified Bible says take your stand. The Good News Translation says stand your ground. So they're all pretty much the same. And whichever way you slice it, What's the hardest thing to do if the Egyptian army is bearing down upon you? Standing firm. Time for, as they say, a gut check. I don't know if anybody saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari. Remember, I don't make pastoral recommendations, but uh, check the rating. And if that doesn't offend you, check it out. It's a good movie. But there's a scene in, in the movie where Carol Shelby, for those of you car guys like Shelby Cobra, Mustang. Carol Shelby, the race car driver, played by Matt Damon, says something fairly profound. I'm going to show you a clip of it right now. The machine becomes weightless, just disappears. And all that's left is a body moving through space and time. 7,000 RPM. That's where you meet it. You feel it coming. Creeps up on you close in your ear. 
ask you a question. The only question that matters. Who are you? The only question that matters. Who are you? Now, I have no idea what thoughts were going through Moses' mind when he was standing on the edge of the Red Sea. It's a great photograph of him, isn't it? With the power of the Egyptians bearing down on him, but I imagine his mind was spinning at 7,000 RPM. He, He had to be thinking, where do we go? What do we do? I wonder whether he had had a flashback to that burning bush when Moses asked God this question, who am I to appear before the Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Do you remember how God answered that question? He didn't answer the question Moses asked. Instead, God answered the question Moses should have asked. God said, I'll be with you. That's all Moses needed to know. That's all we need to know. When Moses' mind was spinning at 7,000 RPM and he said, stand still, he knew. And it's in these moments that we discover who we are and who God is as well. It's so counterintuitive. It, It ranks right up there with something that General Anthony McAuliffe, who was the commander during the Battle of the Bulge, the American commander during the Battle of the Bulge, he said to the troops when they were surrounded by the enemy in the battle, he said this, men, we have the greatest opportunity ever afforded an army. We can attack in any direction. You hear that? They were surrounded, yeah? That's called flipping the script. That's called kissing the wave. In crisis situations, we can do the same thing. We can do likewise. The same God that allowed Moses and the people to stand their ground is there for us as well. He who began a good work is going to carry it to completion. He is working all things together for good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's nothing that God cannot do in and through you. That's how we can stand our ground. So how do we kiss kiss the wave? How do we stand our ground? We ground ourselves in the Bible. In other words, we read the Bible, we listen to the Bible, and we get to know what it says. We anchor ourselves in God's promises. We listen for the promises that God has made us, and we trust in the fact that it ain't fake news. It's real. But we also embrace the pain and suffering because it's through that that we can learn the lessons that those challenges have brought us. All right, one more point. Hold your peace. Moses said to the people, be silent. The New King James Version translates it, hold your peace. Hold your peace. There's a tradition in Orthodox churches, so Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, called passing the peace. It traces its origin back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at God's altar, you realize you have an issue or problem or you're at odds with someone, go and be reconciled. Do what you can to restore the peace. Handling conflict is a powerful way to bring peace. And also, especially in this day and age, handling conflict is radically countercultural, which, of course, is 
one of Jesus' big things. I mean, he was radically countercultural. It totally interrupts the way that the world usually works. When you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you, when you bless those who curse you, divisions are healed, conflicts are resolved, and peace breaks out. When we pass the peace, heaven invades earth. But it's tough. It's really tough to do when we don't have peace ourselves. When we're unable to just be silent, to be still and let God do his thing. In our world, so many of us have lost our peace. And I completely understand that. How do you hold your peace in a world that seems so hectic, so out of control? But as people who follow the Prince of Peace, we ought to be able to do it. We ought to be able to learn to be silent, to learn to just stay chill and find our peace in Jesus. Because you see, our God can quiet the winds. Our God can calm the storms. And as his people, we need to be able to sit back and trust him to do that in our lives. We need to hold our peace by refusing to take offense. Man, oh man, if we could just learn not to be offended by stuff, boy, would peace break out. We need to be able to hold our peace by saying no to our instinct to react. How many times have you reacted when you shouldn't have? I've really gotten into the practice of reacting, but never telling anybody I reacted. I'll write something up or whatever, and then I'll put it in my draft file and then look at it a day or two later and then delete it. We need to learn how to hold our peace and follow Jesus' lead and become grace givers and peacemakers. Because when we do that, we'll find more and more that we'll have peace then to pass to others. If we want to kiss the wave, we've got to hold our peace. So this message today is quite simple. If you want to kiss the wave, you have to face your fear, you have to stand your ground, and you have to hold your peace. And I know it's easier said than done. These things always are. But God knows it too. And the verse that follows today's main verses, God tells us how to get started. Here's what he says in Exodus 14, 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now listen, I'm not sure what step of faith you need to take to move forward today. But I do know this. The first step is the hardest. You have to overcome the law of inertia. You have to exercise initiative. You have to overcome fear by exercising your faith. If you need counseling, it's tough. It's tough to wade into that water. If you're trying to lose weight, it's it's tough to wade into that water. If you're trying to resolve an age-old conflict, it's tough to wade into that water. The first step is always the hardest, but if you want God to do the super, you have to do the natural. If you want God to make a sidewalk through the sea, you have to wade into the water and kiss the wave. One more point. There are two kinds of people in this world, really. There are plotters and plotters. I wrote that so you'd hear the difference. Plotters are those people who see the far-off future, the visionaries. They have a vision beyond their resources. They set God-sized goals. They dream the unthinkable. They attempt the impossible. I admire plotters. But I'll tell you who I admire even more, and that's the plotters. They're the people who get up every morning and say, I'm going to win the day. 
They stay humble. They stay hungry. They stay in their lane and they stay the course. Remember Nashon? I guess you'd call him the patron saint of plotters. If he's famous, he's famous for taking one step. What if he stopped after stepping into the water though? What if he quit when he was waist deep? What if he'd stopped when the water reached his chin? Well, the lesson there is don't quit too soon. Don't give up too easily. We don't have to do that. Because if we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, God will come through. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. In other words, Jesus kissed the wave for you and for me. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, said this, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Let's do the same. Let's kiss the wave so we can win the day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for showing us hard truths, for helping us to understand that you understand, that you know how rough it is here in the world, that you know the things with which we're confronted on a daily basis, the challenges and the fears and the anxieties. But thank you, God, for letting us know that they won't defeat us because we have you. You are with us. And you are able. And you are worthy. So God, as we continue on today and throughout the coming week, we ask that you help us to identify those waves in our lives that have given us trouble. And you help us learn to lean in and give them a smooch so they don't control us anymore. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.